invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Jeremiah 20. Ministry, discouragement, passion, purpose, and sustenance. Last time we were together, we finished Jeremiah, we finished in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 6, considering the first recorded instance of Jeremiah being physically persecuted for his faith. Up until this point, he had been verbally berated. He had been smitten with mouths, but it is only in this time, as far as the record is clear at least, where we saw Jeremiah be um, smitten physically, thrown into the stocks where he would be shamed and where he would um, be perhaps tortured, depending on how the stocks were designed, uh, for the message of the Lord. It was only for one night, after which, of course, he gave that message to Pasher, the son of Immer, whereby uh, he um, proclaimed the terror of the Lord would be upon him. From this we drew the natural and necessary reminders in order to help establish our mindset that it is certainly possible that we as God's people might suffer for the sake of the Lord. And if we are called to walk down that path of suffering, which may not happen as well, by the way, But if we are called to walk down that path of suffering, we are reminded to maintain a tireless perspective that the path of suffering for the Lord's sake, the path of suffering for well-doing, is in fact a path of privilege and of promise. Not one that we would desire, but if it is to come, the Bible says, happy are ye when when you suffer for righteousness' sake. Not because of the suffering, but because in the suffering, we have this confidence that, number one, it might draw us just ever so much closer to experiencing what our Lord did as we walk the the path that Jesus trod. That, number two, in doing so, God has promised us a blessing on the other end. All of this principle, however, by no means implies that the path of suffering is enjoyable, nor is it easy. In fact, quite the opposite is true. And we're going to be reminded of this this evening as we read what I would consider to be Jeremiah's rock-bottom moment, at least emotionally speaking. He will suffer considerably more persecution before the end of the book, But here in Jeremiah 20, we find what we might describe as the deepest wells of Jeremiah's sorrow and anxiety expressed. Along with it, however, there is hope. There's blessing. There's purpose. There's sustenance. And it is this that we need to draw from this evening. Later in the book, we'll see Jeremiah's boldness in the face of death. We'll see his boldness to stand up against those who are berating him, those who are punishing him. We'll see that tremendous boldness. But as we, we, we get there, as we, we travel on that path, we, we first have to find Jeremiah in a pretty dark place. Here we're able to pull the curtain back, as it were, and see Jeremiah's vulnerability by which we are reminded that the followers of Christ don't leave their hum- humanity at the door just because they become Christians. The minister of Jesus Christ doesn't leave his feet of clay at the door. He is still weak. He is still vulnerable. He still has trials. He still has difficulties. He still faces discouragement. And the problem is not when we get discouraged explicitly, 
But when our discouragement becomes despair or depression, and these emotions thus can make us unusable or ineffective for the Lord. So let's read a quick review of what, where we are coming from as we step into verse 7 this week. The Bible said in verse 3, And it came to pass on the morrow that Pasher brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pasher, which meant liberty, but Magnor, Magor Misavib, uh, which means terror on every side. And then we skip to verse 6, and the Bible says, And now, Pasher, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity, and thou shalt come to Babylon, and there thou shalt die, and shalt be buried there, thou and all thy friends, to whom thou hast prophesied lies. So remember that Jeremiah has just been put in these stocks for the night. He has just made this pronouncement, and this forms the context, the, the, the suffering that Jeremiah has just gone through. Even though it gives way to this pronouncement of of terror upon Pasher, even though it gives this that gives way to this pronouncement, as it were, God vindicating Jeremiah right then and there, it still gives way to the context of what Jeremiah is about to experience. And indeed, we have this transition take place in verse 7, where Jeremiah is no longer speaking to Pasher. He's no longer speaking to the nation, but he's speaking to God himself. And we've seen this several times throughout the book, right? It's almost hard sometimes to identify when this is happening. When Jeremiah is stopped speaking to the nation or stopped speaking to an individual and starts speaking to God, and then God starts speaking back. And we have these conversations between Jeremiah and God. So we read this beginning in verse 7. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I. And has prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Jeremiah cries out, Lord, thou hast deceived me. We know he's talking to the Lord here, specifically because he says, oh, Lord. And then he uses that singular pronoun, thou, right? Meaning he's speaking to one person. So it's not, oh, Lord, they have deceived me, right? It's not, oh, Lord, ye have deceived me. It's, oh, Lord, thou has deceived me. Jeremiah is talking to God here. This is reminiscent of the words that Jeremiah gave in, in chapter 15 in another bout of discouragement where Jeremiah asked the Lord in verse 18, Wilt thou altogether be unto me as a liar, as waters that fail? Jeremiah there stood in doubt of God's faithfulness to him. Would God actually stand up for me in the day of suffering? Or God, are you altogether to me a liar? When I come to the waters to draw from those waters in my day of need, is that cistern actually going to be dry? Here, Jeremiah doesn't ask, Lord, have you lied to me? He simply states, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. As we see in a moment, the particular thing in which Jeremiah feels deceived was his call to be a prophet. That's the deceit. Lord, you deceived me when you called me to be a prophet. Jeremiah thinks back upon the time when God called him to be a prophet, when God promised him protection and power. And to Jeremiah, that time was likely one of great excitement and great zeal. Remember the excitement with which Jeremiah entered the ministry? Do you remember those messages where we kind of read about him ready to take on the world? Where he gave the message to the people and the people didn't listen? So he says to God, let's go to the leaders then. They'll surely listen. And he got all excited about going to the leaders before his next bout of discouragement. Things got difficult. And now Jeremiah is suffering physically. And he says to God, God, you tricked me into becoming a prophet. 
That's kind of the idea here. You tricked me into becoming a prophet. Your persuasion overcame me. You are stronger than I am. Prevailed in convincing me to become a prophet. And now here I am in daily derision. I am daily in suffering because you called me to be a prophet. And I was thinking about this glorious this glorious ministry, and now here I am in suffering and in daily derision, and everyone's mocking me. You tricked me. In a sense, this is effectively what Jeremiah is saying here. God, this isn't what I expected, and this isn't quite what I thought I was signing up for. I don't think Jeremiah is actually falsely accusing the Lord in the same way that when Jeremiah said, Lord, are you, go- are, are you going to lie to me or are you going to be a, a liar to me? Uh, we, we did not uh, focus in on the idea that Jeremiah is calling God a liar here. Jeremiah knows the Lord. Jeremiah knows who God is. The idea there was the outflowing of his own heart. It's kind of like what I described last night when I got off the phone with Nathaniel and I had told him I was going to help him and pick him up in the morning. And I looked at the Lord and I said, God, what happened here? Did I really think that God was being ungracious or unkind or any of those things to me? No. But I had planned some rest for this last week, which seemed to be entirely eaten up, not just with him. I'm not, I'm, by, by all means, I'm not blaming Nathaniel here, by any means. <laughs> by any means. Don't get me wrong. And there were some other options on the table, and I chose this option because, uh, it, that for, for any number of reasons. But, so I'm not trying to say that. But what I am saying is, in that moment, there was this feeling of, I wanted to get a little rest and then this, 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 and this happened and it wasn't just Nathaniel this weekend. And things piled up on me and, and I sit there and I say, God, are you teasing me? And I know he's not. And I know that there's, something, there's, some, there's some reason for it, right? But that's kind of the idea that we're getting except Jeremiah was much more discouraged. Jeremiah had lost sight of a few things. So Jeremiah is saying here, God, what I'm experiencing is not what I expected. This isn't what I signed up for. This, not, this is not what I expected when, when you called me to be a prophet. Ministry has an element of romance to it, if I can describe it that way. Uh, and naturally, by that, I don't mean it in a sexual way. I mean it in a historical way. When we talk about the idea of something being romantic from a historical perspective, it's that it is emotionally attractive and that it has some aura of being heroic or adventuresome or epic or mysterious or active. So if somebody um, talks about uh, um, a, a romantic adventure, right, what they're talking about is some epic or heroic adventure, and there is a part of that that, that, that tugs on the emotional heartstrings. It's the same thing that got men to sign up for World War I. It's the, same, it's the thing that uses to get men to sign up for war. Go to war, see glory, fight for your nation, and, and then you're ending up in terror in a firing line somewhere, right? War is not romantic. War is devastating and terrible. But they romanticize war in order to make it sound epic and heroic and exciting so that people will sign up. That's the idea behind romantic here. The ministry has some element of romance to it. Ministry is about men standing up in the face of danger and in the face of, of, of hardened hearts and speaking in God's name about God doing magnificent works beyond our comprehension and people flocking to the word of God and to the power of God. And this is a romantic idea. The idea which bears the marks of that adventure and that mystery and that heroism and, and all of those things. 
Jeremiah was going to be the brazen pillar, God said. He was going to be a brazen pillar and an iron wall, standing against unrighteousness and calling the people back to God. What an opportunity. What a joy to be filled with the words and the power of the Lord. Like Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Calling down fire from heaven. Mocking the prophets of Baal as they slit their wrists and as they try in vain to get their gods to answer their call. What an exciting day that must have been. But was it? Do you remember that account? Do you remember what happened to Elijah immediately following that incredible victory on Mount Carmel? Can we read it together? 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Now therefore send and gather me to uh, gather me all Israel unto Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal four hundred and fifty, and the prophets of the groves four hundred which eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? Here's Elijah's great great message, right? How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They didn't respond at all. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And call ye on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord." And the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. You see the picture of what's happening, right? Take the bullock, dress it for an offering, however you want, but don't put any fire under the altar. And then we'll both do that, and whichever God can, without any fire, produce fire underneath the the bullock and burn the bullock and consume it, he's the real God. And all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. This is a good plan, right? People didn't answer when he said, why halt you between two opinions? But now the answer, let's do this. Let's, let's see who is God. And Elijah said unto the prophets of Baal, choose you one bullock. They get to choose, right? Choose you one bullock for yourselves and dress it first, for ye are many. And call on the name of your gods, but put no fire under. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is talking, or he is pursuing, or he is on a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. He's mocking them openly. Maybe he's, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's pursuing someone else. Maybe he can't hear you because he's answering someone else's prayer. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you just need to get a little louder to wake him up, right? Mocking them openly. 
And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after the manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. So now they're just this bloody heap of mess thinking that maybe if we show enough uh, enough suffering that Baal will finally hear us. A very common thing among pagan worship. And it came to pass when midday was past and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that there was neither voice nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. No God. No God. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullocks in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water. Now here's a hint. If you want wood to burn, you don't douse it in water. That, that, that's a helpful hint for all you aspiring campers. So he says... Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. 34. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they did it the third time. You know what amazes me about this? They're in the midst of a terrible drought. And they use three barrels of water to pour over the sacrifice in the midst of a terrible drought. Like, like years-long drought. They can't find water anywhere. But they went and they got the water necessary because they were close to the ocean. They can get ocean water perhaps. Uh, but but they, they, they got the water here to, to, to do this thing. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench and went all, I mean, just boom, water's gone, wood's gone, sacrifice's gone, everything's gone, right? Boom, done. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slew them there. And, and the way it looks, Elijah slew them all. It's a busy day. What an exciting time to be a minister of God, huh? You preach a sermon and the people aren't sure. And so you say, let me prove to you that my God is true. And he does all of these things. It's just me and it's the 450 prophets of Baal and he fills it with water and he cuts the thing up and then the fire falls from heaven and the water's licked up and the wood's licked up and everything's... Wow, that, that, that is the very definition of what every minister of God envisions when they think of ministering for the Lord. Elijah against the prophets of Baal. One against 450 because it doesn't matter because God's on your side, right? That, that, that's it. What happens next? I'm going to skip a few verses. We pick up in 1 Kings 19, verses 1 through 4. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by the morrow at this time. In other words, she says, I'm going to kill you. By tomorrow at this time of day, you will be dead. And if not, then may God take my life. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life. He fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. So Elijah hears the threat of this evil queen Jezebel, and he gets terribly discouraged. Why? We don't know. I have a, I have a guess. And he'll go on to talk with the Lord some more. But I, lay, I, I have a guess that he was hoping that if this did not reach, if the revival did not reach to the top, then that maybe the people would overcome this wicked queen that has dominated the land. But instead, this wicked queen somehow seemed to very quickly contain the situation and stifle the revival that Elijah was hoping for. But now this evil woman determined to stifle all passions of revival Elijah gets fearful and discouraged. And he felt like a failure. I believe that's what he's expressing here. Weighed down with disappointment, he says, Lord, take my life because I am not better than my father's. There's a few debates about what this means. Quite possibly, though, simply put, he's saying this. I tried and I tried my best. I gave them the most impressive display of your power I could. The people slew the prophets of Baal. That's a great thing. But at the end of the day, that evil woman Jezebel somehow got her grasp, her grip back. She, she, she did not buckle under the pressure of this revival and she stifled it. I have done no better than any of my fathers, any of the other prophets, at bringing about your greatness back to Israel. I think that's what he's saying there. There's some debate. Perhaps he's saying, I'm not better able to bear the fatigues and the dangers and the threats against my life than my fathers, whatever it might be. But consider something with me. As we think about that concept from Jeremiah, Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. Jeremiah perhaps thought about the greatness of the prophets. Maybe even the prototypical prophet who is Elijah. I mean, he was carried off in a chariot of fire, right, into heaven. Mount Carmel was, was like the apex of his ministry. And he sees that part, but maybe he forgot to read on to 1 Kings 19 when he thought about Elijah's ministry. What about Jonah? Jonah's a slightly different idea because Jonah himself had some discouragement issues of his own before his ministry. But here he sees a grand revival. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. And at the end of it, where do we find him? Sitting under a tree asking the Lord to take his life. That's two prophets now that after the greatest victory of their lives for the Lord are sitting under a tree asking God to kill them. Interesting, isn't it? Elijah, Jonah, these great prophets, having just had a marvelous response to their ministry, 
just days later, so discouraged that they're asking the Lord to take their lives. Now consider Jeremiah, who to this point in his ministry, as far as the record is concerned, has not even recorded one positive response to any of his messages. Not one. There may have been some, but we haven't read of them yet. There will be a few later in the text, by the way. We'll get there. Imagine then the feelings that welled up in the heart of Jeremiah as he ministered. Being mocked, scorned, now smitten, put in the stocks for the ministry of the Lord. Held in derision daily. No ministerial success to look back upon with an eye of remembrance of the power of God. And it's not uncommon for those who follow the Lord to find this, this sort of state of discouragement. This state of mind certainly should not surprise us as it relates to Jeremiah. But what is a bit shocking, if I may state it that way, is the extent to which his sorrows extend. So we read in verses 8 and 9 as we continue here. Jeremiah says, For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my fire, my heart, excuse me, as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. So Jeremiah describes how ever since he began speaking in God's name, he, ever since he began crying violence and spoil, right? That's the minute, we've read it a lot. That's, that has been his ministry. Just about every chapter has been violence and spoil. You're going to die. Your children are going to die. You're going to be spoiled. Those of you that don't die are going to be in captivity. You're never going to see your land again. All of that, right? Unless, unless you repent. So he says, I've been crying this message. And in the name of the Lord, I've been reproached. I've been derided. No one's listened to me. No one cares. And so Jeremiah made a personal determination. I will make mention of him no more. Who is him? The Lord. I will not speak any more in his name. I'm done. I quit. Jeremiah quit. I will make mention of his name no more. I will speak no more in his name. Jeremiah says to the Lord, this isn't what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to be a perpetual punching bag. You were stronger than I. You deceived me into this ministry of derision and scorn. So I'm done. I won't speak his name anymore. Nor will I speak in his name. Notice there that Jeremiah doesn't use his name. See that in verse 9? I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. Not, I will not make mention of the Lord, nor speak any more. Even in his statement there, he, he's not using the Lord's name. I will not make mention of that guy anymore, of that name that I will no longer utter. But it didn't work. It didn't work. Because the man of God is called. The man of God loves God. And even though Jeremiah doesn't like the results, something happened to him. And we don't know how long it took. But if he's anything like me, it doesn't take long. Before there's something in you that won't let you stop 
he simply couldn't stop. When he wouldn't make mention of the Lord, when he wouldn't say, thus saith the Lord, when he saw the people hurtling toward that hill, and he says, I'm not going to tell them. I've told them already. It's not gone good for me. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. He says, his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. I could not handle it. I couldn't keep it in. It had to come out. It was building up pressure until it had to boil over. It had to come forth. It was wearying to not speak in his name. And I had to relent. I could not stay. I couldn't remain in this state. I had to share the name of the Lord. I had to share the message of the Lord. His, his, God's word was, was, the passion was there. He was bursting with passion to share the truths of God's word and found his attempt to simply walk away to be absolutely vain, absolutely futile. Why? Verse 10 tells us why. For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side, report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting, saying, peradventure, he will be enticed and we shall prevail against him and we shall take our revenge on him. Jeremiah realized that he was now connected to the Lord. He realized two things. Number one, he hears the defaming and the fear on every side. He hears them continuing. He, he, he sees that if he keeps his mouth shut, this is going to validate everything that the false prophets have said. For Jeremiah to walk away would not be simply to ignore the word of the Lord, but to validate the scorn and the derision of the false prophets. To walk away would give the false teacher the very thing they needed to say, see, this is not of God. And Jeremiah saw that and that welled up within him that fiery indignation that God's word, God's name must be vindicated. And he certainly is not going to be a part of causing God's name to be derided. He could not be. Jeremiah knew the message of God was true. He didn't like telling it anymore, but he knew it was true. He certainly couldn't just sit there and watch as he became the source of even greater scorn and division for the, derision for the Lord. As those pastors and those prophets and those priests laughed at him and mocked him and scorned the message all the more for the fact that he had walked away from it. And they may even use it as the basis to destroy him further. They're just waiting for him to mess up so that they can tear him down. But more than that, the testimony of the Lord. It's never fun to suffer for the Lord's sake. But what is even worse is being a source by which others are able to defame or blaspheme the Lord. God forbid that my actions or my inactions could ever be used as a means by which for the unbeliever to look and say, see, God isn't real. See, that message isn't true. To this end, between verses 9 and 10, we see Jeremiah recover his perspective. He found himself in a place of discouragement, but that place of discouragement did not give way to despair. Instead, it quickly, he quickly was able to recover. For the follower of God, if we walk away from God's word, if we walk away from the testimony of the Lord, if we lose our focus, that happens. We don't just walk away from the association, though, when we walk away from the Lord. We also walk away from his sustaining power, from the sustaining power of the true and living God. Jeremiah was under the protection of God, was he not? What would happen if he stopped telling the, telling the word of the Lord? 
would he still be that iron pillar and that brazen wall? So Jeremiah says in verses 18, or excuse me, 11 and 12. Notice the change here. But the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble. And they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed, for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. But, O Lord of hosts, that trieth the righteous, and seest the reins and the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them. For unto thee have I opened my cause. Jeremiah failed in his attempt to walk away from the Lord because the word of the Lord was in his heart. Because the passion of the Lord, the, the need for the Lord's name to be vindicated, and even the desire to maintain himself under the powerful protection of the Lord, all of these things were upon him. And to this end, he confidently, confidently declares again that those who are wronging him will be the ones who stumble and fall. That he will trust in the Lord, and those who wrong him, they can be the ones to fall. They can be the ones to stumble. They can be the ones to lose faith, to lose sight, to lose strength and vigor. He says in verse 12, Lord, you see the reins of my heart. You know my intentions. You know what's going on. And he prays as he has done before that he might see the Lord's vengeance upon this evil. And in reorientation of his perspective, he takes his sorrow and his confusion and he places it right where it belongs with the Lord. God, I don't understand everything that's happening right now. I'm discouraged. I'm confused. But God, take it. Be my fortress, be my rock, be my strength. Now in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, we have a hymn unto the Lord. And this hymn unto the Lord reminds us that though Jeremiah had regained his perspective, he was still deeply troubled. Now once again, he had regained his perspective. He had, been, he had, he had come back from that precipice of despair and found himself back on firm footing. But that doesn't mean all is roses and gumdrops, right? We're reminded that sometimes what we know has to override how we feel. That just because we feel bad doesn't mean that we have to let it overcome what we know of the Lord. But, simultaneously, just because we are allowing what we know to override how we feel, that doesn't mean we stop feeling the way we feel all the time. So we read in verses 13 through 18. Notice as we read this, the conflict within this hymn. Sing unto the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. For he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man-child is born unto thee, making him very glad. And let that man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and then repented not. And let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide, because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow, that my days should be consumed with shame. Interesting hymn, huh? Notice it begins in verse 13. Sing unto the Lord, praise the Lord. 
because he has delivered my soul. The soul of the poor. That would be him in this case from the hand of evildoers. And yet then the rest of this is cursing the day he was born. Cursing the man who brought the message to his father saying, you have a son. Wishing that he had died in the womb. Jeremiah shows a real conflict here in his heart between what he knows and what he feels. He desired that his life would be overthrown like the cities of God's judgment, Sodom, Gomorrah, and such, to the man who brought the tidings of the birth to his father. Why? Why does he think all of these things? Why does he say all these things? Why does he say that he wishes he had been slain in the womb, died in the womb, that his mother might have been his grave, that he came out of the womb only to see days of labor and sorrow, only that his days would be consumed with shame? Jeremiah is discouraged. But he wasn't in despair. Because in the midst of his sorrow... In the midst of his pain, in the midst of his difficulties, in the midst of even wondering why he was alive, notice the hymn began with sing praise unto the Lord. He was not despairing of God's plan for him. He, he, he had for a moment decided, I'm not going to speak in his name any longer. That did not work. He was re, re, uh, um, refilled with, with the reality of the passion and the, the desire to vindicate the name of the Lord. He recognized his purpose, but he says, just because I recognize it and I know the Lord's plan for me doesn't mean I have to always like it. And it's true. Now again, we're sitting here and as far as suffering for the Lord's sake... Perhaps none of us are in, in open persecution for the Lord's sake, but there's other types of suffering. And as we struggle through whatever suffering we might be going through, even to the point where we say, why, why am I here? Why was I born? Why did God bring me into the world only to suffer this existence? Jeremiah began that, however, with sing praise unto the Lord, praise the Lord. As he lifted his grief up unto the Lord, he started, however, with God. You are still God. And in the midst of our sorrows, and in the midst of the difficult times, and even in the midst of us saying, why am I even here? Why do I even exist? Let us never get to the point where we cannot first start with sing praise unto the Lord, because that's where we cross a line. We cross the line from discouragement or the natural human responses to the suffering that I'm going through to despair. Jeremiah is not questioning, questioning here whether the Lord sees him or knows him. He is simply very sorrowful at the circumstances that he finds himself within. There is a discouragement that desires to creep up in the life of one who has given much or who is under much suffering and in whom in this life he receives very little other than sorrow. 
There is a knowledge of the life to come. There is a knowledge of God's plan. But while that knowledge can always bring that hope of what is to come, it can't always heal the hurt. And within that context, I want to give you three applications this evening. Point number one, in these times of discouragement, in these times where the pains of life, whatever they may be, are real, and they are real. We see that in Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah can't just put a smile on his face and wish these away as some people would think Christians can do. Christians aren't, we're human. We're not, nobody's wired that way. Is it possible that life comes at you in such a way that you cannot help but live under its shadow? Yes. But in those times of discouragement, allow what you know to override how you feel. Remember what you know. It's an interesting chapter of Scripture we have here. Jeremiah is so deeply discouraged, simultaneously driven to call upon the Lord for help in the day of trouble. He tries to walk away, only to be driven back by the passion of the calling and the need to vindicate the Lord's name. But what we find, whether it be with Jeremiah or whether it be with Elijah or whether it be with Jonah, the life of David in the Psalms, the life of Job, is that discouragement is not outside the realm of possibility. Suffering, long-term suffering, perpetual suffering, these are not outside the realm of possibility for God's people. And that being said, discouragement is quite different from despair or depression. Discouragement is a feeling rooted in the circumstances within which we find ourselves. It's something into which we fall. It's something, uh, maybe even a specter under which we might live. But despair is when that, that sorrow or that pain or that discouragement leads us to believe that there is no hope in God. To fall into a depression is to allow what we feel to override what we know and to hold us in a place of deep sorrow that hinders our capacity to function in whatever way the Lord has asked us to function. That function may even be hindered or impeded by our sorrows, by our pains, by our discouragements. And as we consider the legacy of men in the Old Testament who went through such times, let us also remember their response. Elijah prays and asks God to take his life. God replies by reminding Elijah that there were seven thousand, that he wasn't the only one. He wasn't alone. He's not the only one going through this. Look, if you're suffering with some level of discouragement, with, 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 with pain, with sorrow, you're not the only one living this, this, this circumstance. You're not the only one that's going through this context. God reminds Elijah, you're not the only one. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And with this renewed perspective, what happened to Elijah? God reminded him of this thing and then Elijah was able to get up and to get back to work, to allow what he knew to override how he felt. Jeremiah determined to speak in the Lord's name no more. And yet Jeremiah 
cannot but praise and serve the Lord and scattered in the midst of his anguish is a determination to the Lord be praised. Sing unto the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Scattered in the midst of all of that anguish. David writes in Psalm 42, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. David's soul was cast down. His soul was disquieted. He felt feeble. He felt sorrowful. He didn't know where to turn. It was black as night. And yet he was determined to allow what he knew about God to override how he felt at that moment. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David wrote, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Maybe the sheep can't see the shepherd when they're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe even to the point where, as Jeremiah sings his hymn, he says, why was I even born? And yet Jeremiah, in verse 13, and yet David In Psalm 23, I will fear no evil. Jeremiah, sing praise unto the Lord. Thou art with me. Job, while suffering not only the loss of his children, his riches and his health, but also under the tremendous attacks of his comforter. He's lost his children. He's lost his riches. He is sitting in ashes in perpetual pain from head to toe. Constant pain. And now he has these people that surround him called his comforters. And the three that are speaking, with one that keeps his mouth shut, the three that are speaking are all telling him, Job, this is your fault. Job, you're in the wrong. Job, there's some sin in your life. Job, you're the problem here. And Job says, I can't see it. And as Job goes through this process of extreme discouragement, everybody around him attacking him in his weakest moment, and he's in perpetual pain, and he's in sorrow, and he's lost 10 children, and he's lost all of his riches, and he cries out in Job 23, verses 8 through 10, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I can't perceive him. I'm looking all over for God. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. Job says, I can't see God. It's dark in here. My friends are berating me. My children are dead. I'm in pain from head to toe. I can't sit without pain. I can't stand without pain. I can't lie down without pain. But he knoweth the way that I take. He knows. God knows. He's still there. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. He knoweth the way I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Not only does God know the way that I take, but God did not make a mistake. God is with me still. I can't find him. I have no idea where he is. I've looked forward. I've looked backward. Left hand, right hand. I can't see him, but I know he's there. And when he's finished with me, The things that I'm going through, it'll be for the best. Such as a reminder from Jeremiah this evening. Discouragements come. Hard days come. Maybe they stay. I'm not saying it's good. 
Not saying it's always something that we should expect and certainly not anything we should want. I don't want to tell you everything's going to be okay in this sense of the word. But in a sense, it is okay. It's going to be okay. Because you're human. We aren't ever called to pretend that Christians don't get sad, that Christians don't get discouraged, that life is always just perfect for the ones that are in Christ. We've never been asked by God to always put on a smiling face, to never show emotion. But in these times, there is a certain response in which we are all called to have, whereby we rely upon the deep and abiding promises of God that override the difficulties within which we find ourselves at the moment to hope in Christ. Why art thou cast down on my soul and why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Why? For he knoweth the way that I take. God knows the path I'm treading. And it is this that allows our discouragement to not descend into depression and despair. Hope in Christ. Point number two. First, in times of discouragement, allow what you know to override how you feel. Point number two. Remember the world judges God by the actions of those who claim his name. Jeremiah, as he considered his desire to walk away from the commission to preach the word of God, he was compelled by the passion of the message to return, coupled with an acknowledgement that if he were to walk away, the scorners would win. This is reminiscent of Moses' words to the Lord, calling the Lord unto mercy for the nation of Israel, because if if the Lord did not show mercy, then God's enemies would see it. And in seeing what the Lord did to the nation of Israel, that the Lord's name would be blasphemed among the Gentiles. The New Testament is littered with these similar warnings toward Christians about this thing. We see it in, second, in Titus chapter 2. We see it in First and Second Peter, where Christians act in such a way that they cause the word of God to be marred, the testimony of God to be blasphemed or scorned among the unbelieving world. In fact, we even studied the concept a while ago on Tuesday evening, recognizing it to be a portion of what it means to take or to claim or to assume the name of the Lord in vain. So Paul warned the Jewish readers in Romans chapter 2. He says, Thou therefore that which teachest another, teachest thou, thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. We are not numbered among those who make our boast in the law. We're not Jews. We are instead numbered among those who make our boast in Christ. But just as Paul warned the Jew that in making their boast in the law and then offending the law, they give reason for the name of God to be blasphemed among the unbeliever. So too, let us remember that when we boast in Christ but walk contrary to the doctrines of Christ, we give reason for the name of Christ to be blasphemed among unbelievers. 
How many of you know someone who has walked away from the faith because they are disgusted by the way Christians act or the way they treat one another or the way a church has acted in a corporate sense? How many of you know someone who has no interest in the faith because they've never seen anything in the faith but hypocrisy and false pretense? And we tell them, don't let bad Christians and bad churches taint your perspective on God. And it's true. There's lots of bad churches out there. There's lots of people who claim Christ that aren't Christians even who taint the name of Christ. But the fact of the matter is this. It's true. It's absolutely true. But is it realistic? People will judge the word of God by those who claim to believe it, won't they? And because of this, it's important that if we claim to believe it, that we do believe it. Because when we fail to live it, it affects the testimony of Christ in the world around us in very real ways. Third and final point. God help that we might share the passion of Jeremiah. One of my favorite pastimes is looking at the passages that we often consider to be the failures of God's ministers and finding within them the reasons why these ministers are getting a bad rap. Still struggling to figure that out with Jonah. But Peter, the one who often put his foot in his mouth, the one who we like to give a hard time to because he sank when he walked on water, the one that we like to give a hard time to because he denied the Lord thrice, is yet the one that got out of the boat, right? He's yet the one that became the foundation upon which the church was built, that gave that great sermon on the day of Pentecost and saw thousands come to the Lord. And Jeremiah, one of the reasons why he's so easy to get down upon is because he's so transparent. Transparent people, when you see a person's heart, you see the good and the bad, right? Right? When a man is willing to make himself transparent, you don't just see his, his desires and his love for the Lord. You also see the times of his hardship and his discouragement. Jeremiah gets discouraged. He gets upset. He cries quite a bit in the book. <laughs> he even walks away. But let us be careful because this man through whom we experience some pretty low lows is also a man who introduces us to some amazing passion for the Word of God. Earlier in the book, Jeremiah was compelled to go to the leaders, aching to share with them the Word of the Lord. Here in Jeremiah 20, the prophet shares his intense discouragement, his determination to quit, even his desire to die, his desire that he would have died before he was even born. And he says here, I was determined to quit. But his word was in mine heart. As a burning fire shut up in my bones. He couldn't quit. To fail to speak the truth of God's word in the ears of the hearers was to attempt to suppress an unquenchable fire to proclaim the truth in the ears of all who would listen. And God help that we might share some of that passion. 
God, help that we might yearn within ourselves to share the truth of God with clarity and with distinction. God, help that others might know Christ and the power of the gospel through my life, the power of the gospel through my testimony, the power of the gospel through my ministry, the power of the gospel through my family. God, help that others might come into the kingdom of the living God through me. God, help that we might have the passion of Jeremiah in whom the word of God burned like a fire. God, help that we might have the passion of Stephen, who filled with the Holy Ghost, declared the truths of Jesus Christ and the power of God to the masses of Jewish dissenters right before they stoned him to death. God, help that we might have the passion of Paul when he stepped out on Mars Hill in Athens and declared unto them the knowns the power of the unknown God who they worshipped even though they had no idea who he was. The scorn, the mockery, the weight of the sin that exists around us. All of these things can tempt us to want to grow thick skin and to incubate ourselves against passion. The difficulties of our own lives, the pains and the sorrows that we go through, even perhaps the dread of the kind of discouragement which Jeremiah and Elijah and Jonah faced might cause us to want to step back and say, maybe I don't quite want to go there. Because the more passion I have, the more danger I am in to become discouraged, to become disoriented. But don't allow that to happen. Don't allow your fear of something, sorrow, disappointment, scorn, shame, whatever it might be, keep you from having a passion to share the truth of God's word. Because passion is what is needed today. That's what is needed today. Believers willing to stand up for the name of Christ. Believers willing to share the word of God with clarity and with distinction and then back it up by the way we live our lives. That's what is needed today. God help us to understand that in times of discouragement, they're going to come. They may even stay. But we need to allow what we know to override how we feel. God help us that we would remember that the world does judge God, whether they should or not, whether we like it or not, by the actions of those who claim to represent Him. And third and finally, God help that we might share the passion of Jeremiah. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.